1: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine I'm Kirsten Ellsworth, host of The Art Channel, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with April Damon, author of Karita Kent, Art and Soul, The Biography, published by Angel City Press 2015. Welcome to the show, April. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to speak with you this morning about one of my favorite artists, Karita Kent.
1: Well, and I'm glad to know that you're already familiar with her work.
0: I I am, because I've been in love with her work for years, but today we're going to hear from you about why we should be more interested <laughs> in uh, Corita's work. So may I start by asking you how you became interested in Corita? Sure.
1: I had written another biography. I'm an art historian here in Los Angeles, and I was looking for an interesting female subject this time. My first book was about my husband's grandfather, Earl Stendhal, a really visionary but not well enough known art dealer from the early art scene of the 20th century in Southern California, and I knew there were so many other interesting personalities in our area um, who haven't had their due, and as a biographer, I thought, well, it's my job to bring a few of these wonderful people to the attention um, of a public who should know about them publisher, Angel City Press, and I talked, and I would say almost simultaneously, Patty Calistro, my editor and publisher, and I landed on uh, Sister Corita, who became Corita Kent. You know, I was at UCLA as a college student in the 60s when Corita was starting to uh, get some attention as an art teacher and as an artist, silkscreen maker at Immaculate Heart College. And I live about a mile away from Immaculate Heart College even now, all these years later. Uh, And I wasn't far from uh, where Corita was living and working as a nun when I was uh, even at UCLA. So we have a bit of a shared history and I just felt that that I was, uh, I don't know if it was divine, but I felt that I was led to writing about her.
0: That's a wonderful answer and I, in your book you speak in such a personal way about you make Corita really come to life not in a just informative way but as a person and the environment of Immaculate Heart maybe you would speak to us a little bit about Immaculate Heart and the nature of the place and what might have drawn Corita there or how she shaped that community.
1: Mm, Sure I'd love to. Corita became a nun at age 18 here in Los Angeles. She grew up in Hollywood. Once again, not far from where I live. And her path was kind of chosen for her. She was enthusiastic about the sisterhood. She had an older sister, Ruth, who had already joined the Immaculate Heart community of nuns here in Hollywood. And she had a brother, Mark, who had become a priest. So her parents kind of, her, her Catholic parents kind of hit the jackpot with two of their children, and it was a big family, six children, you know, entering into religious orders. Immaculate Heart College then was the place that Corita knew about, and she uh, made her vows and entered the Immaculate Heart Sisterhood uh, right out of high school, uh, L.A. Catholic Girls High School here in town, and began her long uh, 32-year relationship just on the campus because that's where the convent was but in the art department and i can tell you what i learned not just from my research but from talking to many of her former students who are all about my age now because we were young in the 60s all together they tell a story of a teacher who made them truly feel like artists because for Corita any act of creativity was art. And, you know, uh, I've come to believe that strongly. As a writer, I consider myself an artist. And so what Corita did was she turned on these conservative Catholic girls, all girls' school, mind you, at Immaculate Heart, high school and college. Um, she taught in the high school and the college, and she brought in and They got their hands dirty with ink at the, the silkscreen presses brought in famous Los Angeles dignitaries from the artwork. Don't ask me why they said yes to her invitation. Will you come and speak to my girls about uh, architecture, Buckminster Fuller? Will you come and talk to my girls about film, Alfred Hitchcock, Beatrice Wood, Henry Miller? That was a controversial guest. And people said yes to her because they heard Something very interesting was going on at the corner of Franklin and Western in Hollywood, where a young nun was um, was turning inexperienced Catholic girls into artists.
0: What a story! Just the names <laughs> you mentioned, from Buckminster Fuller to Henry Miller, at a Catholic girls' school—it's <laughs> hard to believe. Do you have um, in your research which is so? Important for everyone to know that research is driven by your interviews with many students, people who were, you know, who had the chance to encounter Corita. Do you feel there was a force of personality that Corita had, which made people curious about her? Or do you have any thoughts about how she pulled that off?
1: That's a really good question. She was a uh, captivating in person, quiet, but magnetic. That's what I heard over and over again. Ah, but she had a kind of a partner in crime over there in the art department, and that was Sister Magdalene Mary, uh, who was the chairman before Carita. And Maggie was almost like Carita's agent. She promoted Carita's artwork when Carita was completely unknown. And I think Maggie also had something to do with making some of those invitations Phone calls, and she made sure the Los Angeles Times and the Old Herald Examiner, our local papers, knew of some of Carita's latest work and where a couple of the prints had had uh, sold. And so between the two of them, and then later, pretty much just Carita, they created this kind of aura about what was going on over there. But you asked about Carita's personality specifically. You know, she battled insomnia her whole life. And in my research, I came to believe that she had depression, and there wasn't medication for it, and there wasn't even, I think, an accurate diagnosis. She just kind of worked, 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 kept busy, almost in a manic way, and she drove her students to meet those same challenges and the same demands. But whereas I think it took a toll on Corita, what the students saw wasn't the nun who was awake all night, or the nun who uh, was sad and, uh, you know, having trouble establishing an energetic point of view when she was so tired, what they saw in the classroom and in the art workshops was just a dedicated, loving teacher with a smile, so encouraging. It's not like she was putting on an act, not at all, but she knew how to... Focus where she had to, and then how to go and try to sleep or pray. You know, as a nun, she had um, just a devout and neat prayer life along with all of her beloved sisters. And so she had God and she had the Catholic Church and she had the camaraderie with very bright, progressive nuns at Immaculate Heart College. Um, So I would say her support system allowed her
0: the pace that she did uh, in so I'm trying to imagine insomnia, art teaching, politics, mm-hmm. she obviously had a lot of energy, although as you mentioned, depression that possibly was untreated. Many artists, I believe, do suffer from depression, and sometimes the art becomes an outlet. Um, you mentioned the support community. Would you speak a little bit about her relationship with Charles Eames?
1: Yes, I think I quote in the book that uh, Sister Carita considered Charles Eames her first real teacher. And she had some good teachers um, an MFA from USC uh, and the teachers at Immaculate Heart College when she, as a young nun, earned her Bachelor of Arts degree. And yet it was in taking some workshops and classes from Charles and later Ray Eames' wife. That she felt she was just um, enlightened by his philosophy of art and design as something practical, something that you do to, to enhance your living environment and your world. And so I found um, at I, I went to Harvard and to Radcliffe College to a couple of wonderful libraries, uh, the Schlesinger Library. for of women. Oh, that was a treasure trove. They have a large Perita archive. I spent days looking through correspondence and photos and essays, and um, what I found there was that Charles Ames was a, a very great influence for her, and she just admired him personally, and brought her suit to his um, important experimental home in Pacific Palestine. Uh, to
0: see how he and Ray lived what they taught. I really imagine a student today to hear, a group of students went to the home of Charles and Ray Eames and actually got to interact. I think they were doing their a lot of their film work at the time. It's just hard to imagine. But as you said, Corita had that special something that let her really interact with the LA crowd and very famous designers. Would you like to add any words about what the Los Angeles art scene was like when Eames was here and maybe moving into the 60s? What was Corita, what did she encounter when she walked out of the convent into the city and interacted (laughs) with these artists?
1: Yes, and, you know, walking out of the convent into the city with her students uh, was so important to her. The nun's life can be an insulated life. But Corita and her sisters, as I said, they were a progressive bunch. They went to Fellini movies without permission occasionally. They just explored their whole urban landscape. And at the the head of the pack was Corita. And so what a vibrant time to be making and teaching art. You know, I wrote a biography of my husband's grandfather, Earl Stendhal, who was very much a part of that scene. Quite early, the 20s, the 30s, all the way into the mid-1960s. So as an art historian, I really studied uh, mid- and earlier 20th century American art, and specifically here in L.A. and in Southern California. And Herrera took her students to the Ferris Gallery in West Hollywood. She heard there was something about Campbell's soup cans. I mean, what was that? And she got there and was exposed for the first time here on the West Coast Andy Warhol's calligraphy. And of course, silk screening is just what captivated Corita and what made her reputation and what she was doing artistically the rest of her life. And she saw that you could you could borrow something from the commercial world, advertising such as Campbell's soup cans, and turn them into colorful, humorous statements of what it means, maybe give slightly a different meaning to very ordinary objects. Ah, but what Sister Corita did that was so different than others like Ed Ruscha and um, people also influenced by Warhol, uh, Rauschenberg, she found a spiritual element, or she created a spiritual message in so many of her Prince. Uh, but it really did start with the late 50s and into the early 1960s when Los Angeles was really, gosh, it was a hotbed for young, innovative artists, and she, I think I say this in the book, she wasn't invited to sit on a bar stool at Barney's Deanery in West Hollywood with the cool school of male artists, but she belonged there. And she was equally influential to some of those important uh, men, Ed Kienholz, Walter Hopps. What an exciting time for her to be making art. But I have to say, she was a female in full habit, you know? And nuns just weren't recognized as doing much serious beyond taking care of our spiritual
0: life. You paint such a wonderful picture with your words of that scene, and then you're the photographs in your book, there you see, you know, these famous avant-garde artists here in Los Angeles. And then there's Corita in her nun's habit. It's yes. it's really, it's compelling. And you mentioned the pop art. I wondered if you might speak about the tomato controversy, which seems to sort of get us into how maybe the church, some in the church began to view her ideas
1: Yes. Uh, Carita was a problem for the Los Angeles diocese. With a more understanding cardinal, someone who wasn't James Francis McIntyre, I really think she and her nuns could have continued on their path of progressive ideas of education. They so embraced the Vatican II liberalization, where prayer times were not as prescribed. They faced their congregation. They could, could, you know, there were so many things that the rest of America embraced with with Catholic uh, new ideas and new modernization. But in Los Angeles, that really wasn't allowed. And Corita was the biggest problem, Sister Corita, because her artwork was provocative. It was beautiful. It was colorful. Her technical skill really was magnificent. And yet, you know, here she paints... gorgeous large print of a tomato, and she was actually referring to Holy Mary, the Virgin Mary, as a juicy tomato. This just wasn't all right with the Catholic male hierarchy. The essay written, it's a little hard to read because much of Carita's art has text, as you know. She was famous for combining graphic art and lettering and words. The text was written by Sam Eisenstein, who I was so fortunate to interview for the book. He's still with us. He's quite elderly. He lives in Pasadena, uh, and he knew Corita and still teaches at Los Angeles City College. But Sam did the text. Mr. Corita did the beautiful red tomato, the idea being that Mother Mary is wholly female and, and woman. She personifies womanhood, not just the mother of Christ. And so this comparison, comparing her in mean, something that you could you could infer as slightly sexual, it, well, it caused a firestorm in her diocese and really set off a years-long conflict with Cardinal McIntyre that, as you know, ended in uh, Carita and hundreds of her sisters having to leave Immaculate Heart, leaving their order.
0: That's a sad part of this of the book is when you learn that she left, and um, as you mentioned, Cardinal McIntyre, they the powers that be just didn't get it, for lack of better words. Do you think that? Um, let's. Uh, we'd really like to hear from you. The years after Immaculate Heart, um, what kind of art? Did Corita pursue and her mood, maybe, when she left? What a, a shift from that very cloistered community to being on her own, or not on her own, but living as, a, I guess, a civilian in Boston.
1: Yes, and I don't get asked that question too much. And I'm interested in her post-Los Angeles life because she developed further. She went to Boston. And she lived alone for the first time in her life, an independent woman at age 50, had never bought her own clothing, had never written a check, uh, earned a driver's license and driven a car. Um, Really, you can just almost not imagine the adjustment that this was for her. But the freedom and the independence after having worked herself way too hard for many years, she was able... To enjoy the positives of that move. And it was a very good move for her. She had friends in Boston, and uh, she had many visitors, and came back to Los Angeles to look after and visit her Corita Prince Gallery in North Hollywood, where her wonderful sister Mary um, handled the business end of things here on the West Coast for Corita. So well, she didn't disappear from LA, but she did create a new life. And what I discovered was, and others others have seen this, her, her paintings, her silk strings became softer. She began to paint in watercolor. She was doing more flowers. you know, gone was the pop art of the uh, car and the oil can and the tomato can and the tomato and, and the, the lemon that actually you know, told of the bitter and the sweet. Everything was symbolic. She moved into something that was less symbolic, less poppy, less uh, saturated with color, but something that reflected her own soul's transition. She became quieter, and so did her art. But one can't talk about the Boston years without um, observing that she became ill a few years after her move. And she had multiple tumors, a couple of different kinds of cancer. She and some more mission. He I believe she lived, maybe you can tell me, I think you've looked over my book more recently than I have, Kirsten, but she um I think she went about twelve years after that first cancer diagnosis. And so she did well, you know, considering her illness.
0: Yes, and I was um, so interested in this part of your book because we don't hear much about the post years and in addition to the um sort of change in the art, also I I was really interested that she was pursuing non-western medicines for her cancer and it just seems very consistent that she was interested in anything and everything um and didn't really feel bound by rules. So my next question for you this relationship that she might have had, I guess she did have, with Father Madero's. Yes. What, would you describe a little bit about that? Yes.
1: She said openly to some close friends that she would like to have gotten married. You know, a 50-year-old woman is very eligible, especially someone as bright and beautiful and talented as Carita Kent. She did become Carita Kent. and. um she had deep friendships, usually with priests. A fascinating one was with Father Daniel Berrigan, who just died, I believe, last year. And oh, they were close. They they considered themselves soulmates, and they saw each other a lot, both on the east and west coasts. He had a strong relationship of friendship with another priest up in Santa Maria, California, who Um, One of his associates was so kind to give me some never-before-published photographs for the book. And what I would say is her beautiful, Catholic heart just, um, she was attracted to priests. I believe that she finally did truly fall in love with Father uh, Humberto Medeiros. He was Portuguese descent, and he was in the Boston Diocese. Uh, um, diocese near where she lived she got to know him well and he was on the path to cardinal um, very high up in the hierarchy and in fact he did become a cardinal after she passed away in 1986 and then he didn't live much longer but I I, I have a very good authority from a close friend of hers that this was a man that she loved and I think she had a hope that he might leave the church you know to be able to pursue a relationship with her but in fact he did not
0: it's just as it's it's a a bittersweet part of the story really especially as you convey it in the book because Corinne is free and she has these hopes to have some kind of relationship but then there's always the art right she always is working on her art even when she was ill yes which um, is the sign of a real artist. I'm really interested in your comment in the book that if one wants to look at avant-garde pop art, and I think you also mentioned this um, in our our talk right now, Karina Kent is very much under-examined, maybe because she was a woman, um, because she's, There are all these other big names. What do you think? um, How do you think Corita should be studied today in by art historians, by students of art history? Um, How do you think she needs to be presented?
1: I just finished uh, um, a book, a manuscript, last night. I'm in great mood talking to you today, to your audience. Uh, A short biography of Picasso, an artist you might have heard of. And Pablo Picasso had such a fascinating life. It was so much of his time. Of course, he lived into his 90s. He represented many decades of art and his own personal history. Carina lived only to age 67, so she had a very short life. But I, I do think there is something about artists who are so identified with their output, their of, you know, um, that it's hard to separate them. And maybe we should not even try to separate them. Corita saw herself first as a teacher, and then as a woman religious when she was in the church, and third as an artist. But I think toward the end of her life, when some of that dropped away, no longer teaching, no longer a nun, she was able to really embrace her identity as an artist. And no, she never stopped working because that is that was her gift to the world. My biography came out at a very good time, beautiful exhibition called Somewhere in Time, which is taken directly from one of her prints, opened a couple of years ago, gosh, now maybe three years ago at Skidmore College in upstate New York, and I went to see it. The same show traveled to several cities I landed in Pasadena at the Pasadena Museum of California Art last year. It was here about five or six months. So of course I went to see it again because it's always interesting how new curators and different institutions put up a show. But the what what mattered was the art. It was those just a room after room of her beautiful prints representing the various um various not schools, but the emphases, you know, that she would find in her own art. Her transitions from uh, very religious art, we didn't talk about that yet today, but she did start out for several years with biblical subjects, and then in the 60s, moving into a very vibrant and provocative pop prints, and then later um, shells from the beach and flowers and uh, back to some portraiture,
0: until she died. You know, that exhibition, really, I also had the privilege the good fortune of seeing it. I was very surprised to learn, and maybe you can talk to us about that particular transition, that Corita did start with representational religious uh, work. Why do you think she, what led her to make the switch into her silk screening and her her words and image so different from that more traditional religious
1: art i have found in studying other artists that these creative people need to move they just don't get stuck anywhere i know picasso felt it was his responsibility to try the next thing and in fact to pioneer the next big thing very few have the kind of influence he had. But when Corita was out in the city of L.A. with her students, they were at a gas station reading signage. They were in the market basket grocery store across the street from the convent looking at the uh, signs and prices of fruits and vegetables. She saw through her artist's eye possibilities. And those possibilities, again, with Eames's influence and Warhol's influence, he saw opportunities try new things and she had these young 18 19 year olds who were so willing to go along with her and push these boundaries so it was a perfect storm of innovation and creativity but her eye uh, it was so important she would create a small rectangle that she called a finder which is about the size of a kodak um slide we used to use kodak slides you know and that little two by four inch rectangle The girls were asked to hold it up to their eye and see just that much of their world. This piece, and this piece, and then that piece. It was a way to zero in on detail and on what was important in the center of a work that could expand out and become something bigger. So she had these ideas that just could not be contained. And so of course she went from one genre to another.
0: It's just... You describe that characteristic in artists so well. Have to keep moving forward. Um, what's going on in the world? So important to Krita. Um, what about her? Uh, maybe it's a little underestimated when you see the the fantastic silkscreens photographed very well in your book. She was really good at silkscreen, is my understanding, and she she made some difficult pieces. That, um, as I read in your book, you know, she even had a point where she was questioning if her art was going in the right direction, and she was writing to Aeneas Nin, another unusual friend yes. um, would you comment a little would you like to comment a little bit about her technique?
1: You know, she had some doubts along the way. I know, as a writer, I need feedback from time to time from someone. Talented, a little more objective, much more objective than I am. And so I share my work with people. Uh, and so did Farida. Anaya's Min, can you imagine? Um, she had correspondence with so many fascinating people. And she respected the opinion of others. She recognized that she was subjective. But I don't remember her ever really doubting her own talent. He began making silk springs in 19. 19- 55 or so, really early on, while still in graduate school, when I do my PowerPoint talk about from the book with you know the beautiful slides from pictures in the book, I talk about that um, she starts out, as I said to you, with the biblical figures, and then she moves on to something less representational, but always, always wanting reaction from those who are looking at her work, and so when I give Talk, I encourage a little bit of feedback from my audiences. You know, what do you think of this? Do you own any of Carita's art? Would you hang this on your wall? And she became just very talented as a serigrapher, winning awards at Los Angeles County Museum at age about 22.
0: It's incredible, and I think this is a good uh, spot to. Remember, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about her, the education, the formal education in art that she pursued while her being a teacher and fulfilling her duties as a religious person.
1: It wasn't easy because as a member of the convent, she was teaching. She was sent off to an Indian reservation in Canada for a few years to teach children on the res. And then she comes back and she's assigned to high school students in Immaculate Heart. And now she's earning her B.A. in Art from Immaculate Heart. It took her seven or eight years at USC to complete the Master of Fine Arts because she had a big teaching schedule and her prayer life and her responsibilities at the college and at the convent. So she um, had a while on her plate. And things she had goals, but it took a while to reach her goals. But um, But, you know, she was so capable. She met every challenge and participated fully in each one. I'm
0: interested, too, in hearing a little bit more about her adding to the list of things she did, her traveling. She really loved to travel and pulled off some pretty interesting trips.
1: (laughs) Well, Catholic nuns were very much respected and honored. I hope they still are out there in our world. And there were free hotel rooms and free meals, and and, um, a very generous uh, member of our L.A. Catholic uh, population, someone well-known to the nuns and who supported Immaculate Heart College in our local diocese, funded a, I don't know, gosh, how long were they gone? I think Carita and Sister Maggie were gone about a year and a half to Europe and to North Africa, And so budgets weren't a problem for her. During those years, and she was an avid photographer. She took 8,000 slides on that long European tour. She was looking at art, she was looking at architecture. It was just a wonderful eye-opening trip for her. And, And who benefited? All her students when she returned. She would show the slides and talk about them and what she had seen me, the fascinating part of that trip and trips across the West, she collected folk art that she would use as subjects for the girls' projects or in her own painting and silk screening. And by the time that Carita and Maggie were gone for Immaculate Heart, they had acquired and the school had assembled a world-class collection of the finest folk art from all over the world. And unfortunately, it was sold off kind of piecemeal at auction around nineteen eighty when the college was just struggling to stay open. Finances were a problem. College eventually closed anyway. And although oh, the high school is still there and doing well. And that marvelous collection was distributed, you know, just sold off. But I have talked to some people, interviewed people who have pieces from the collection they were so wise to go to Sotheby and bid on some of these things and and win them at auction and they still are very proud to have them in their private. I it's was fabulous. so
0: intrigued by the story of the Folk Art Museum in your book. I didn't know any about that. The Folk Art Museum at the college that they yeah, had.
1: It was, it's more or less a room in the basement with lots of <laughs> You know, they may do with what
0: they have. It just just makes me want to know more about, and I wish I had been a student of Krita. what her classroom was like. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us from your research? And I know it's present in your book about the assignments she gave students.
1: Yes, well, I mentioned that finder to go out in the neighborhood and try to focus on just a small piece of what your vision was. So that was key. Oh, but she worked them as hard as she worked herself she would have them carving alphabet blocks out of wood and rubber you know rubber stamps whole alphabets a to z and they had to turn it in you know tomorrow some of the parents were um i don't know that in those days if parents ever called up faculty representatives or principals or mother superiors to complain i have a hunch they didn't because although the girls could hardly go to sleep at night. The homework assignment for Corita was so large, but they saw how happy their daughters were and how excited their daughters were to go out to school the next morning. So I don't think anyone was complaining except maybe once in a while the girls. Corita just made very, very big demands on them. And they had to turn things in quickly. And they had to do multiples of things. Find a thousand words in Look and Life magazine by tomorrow that have anything to do with color, any word that has to And these girls are at home, tuning the magazines. One little girl, oh, this is a funny story, The acto knives they used to do carving and other art projects, maybe preparing plates for etchings. Sometimes they would cut their little fingers. And so there was a pot in Corita's, one of her workshops downstairs in the basement, um, where anyone who bled had to put a quarter in the pot, and by the end of the school year, they had enough money for quite a nice party. <sighs> I thought that was funny.
0: I think that story is typical of huh. the the and the uh, the mood at the school. It typifies the mood, and it it also makes the book so uh, a page turner. It's a cliche. This, because it just brings to life. I feel like I'm in the classroom, and when I read that they were would have to do 200 drawings at a time, and but it seems maybe a final question we could uh, address, if you would like, is the fame of Corita. You mentioned magazines, and of course, those magazines the students were cutting from also featured Corita in the 1960s.
1: There was some publicity, not a lot. Um, when way her name really um, was appearing in the magazines was when she went to Boston. She needed income of her own for the first time. And so she took some commercial commissions. Westinghouse was a big one. IBM was another. And so there were full-page color ads of Corita Kent art with, with sayings. You know, she was very big on inspiring quotes from The Beatles or from... Uh, literary figures, uh, poets, uh, our other artists, musicians, Simon and Garfunkel, and so Westinghouse was so wise to put her art in their magazines. I don't know how effective they were in selling Westinghouse products, but it really did put Carita's name out there front and center in a way that it hadn't been as much. And you know when I was talking to you about her classroom, she played the Beatles she had music going in her classroom. I mean, it was very innovative. Uh, other nuns in Catholic schools were not doing something.
0: I think Corita was the sense I get from your book and from speaking with you today, she was just cool.
1: <laughs> I- very good. If you had said April, we have a 40-minute interview. But what I really want you to do is just wrap it all up with one word. I couldn't do better than cool.
0: What a cool woman and what a contribution your book is. As a very final, final question, may okay. I ask you about any f- your future project? You alluded to it, but would you like to tell us more?
1: Well, I'm working now for Applewood Books on a series of what they call small biographies. And these are beautifully made hardcover books, but they're quite little and they're not very long. I think that the idea is just to turn people on, maybe particularly the young adult audience, and give them a short biography so that if they really are captivated, they'll go out and learn more. So I've just finished Picasso. Claude Monet is already published. And Van Gogh is coming. And some others. And I think that uh, the press will move into also sculptors and other kinds of artists. Who knows? Maybe there will be a little karita that I will certainly offer to do. But I'm enjoying this because it's, it's what I do, um, art biography.
0: I would really look forward to that series. And it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you very much for your time and for giving us this wonderful book. Again, the book is Karita Kent, Art and Soul, the Biography. Our author is April Damon, and this is published by Angel City Press 2015. Thank you very much, April. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you.